So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, so we're going to spend our time. How do you know if you have christmas well? What's the metric you use to evaluate your Christmas experience? Like there's, there's no stopping it. Christmas is coming like a freight train and, and there's no getting out of the way. We have to go through it. Uh, but how do you know if you've gone through Christmas well? Um, the metrics you might use, uh, you, you might say, well, okay, emotionally, I, I handled the season all right. It's not an easy season for me emotionally, but I did okay. That'd be one metric. You might say, hey, I gained three pounds. Uh, that would be one. You might say, I lost three pounds. That'd be uh, possible as well. Uh, you, there's any number of things you might say. You might point to um, all of your Christmas gatherings, the gifts you gave, gifts you received, things that you did, travels you endured, all of that stuff. There's a lot of different things we might point to, but Matthew chapter 2 Verses 1 through 12 points us to a different metric to evaluate our Christmas observance. And the metric it gives us here is worship. How do we know if we have Christmased well? Matthew chapter 2 teaches us worship is the way we know. Worship's the barometer of our understanding of and our experience of Christ. And so you may have been to all kinds of Christmas gatherings, you may have been to one Christmas gathering, you may have done all sorts of things this past month, but worship is the thing that matters. How have we worshipped? That's how we know we understand and have experienced Christmas. And so our passage today is a primer on worship, and it teaches us three characteristics of the worship of Jesus. Now, you might say, what, what's the point of this since we're on the back end of Christmas now? Well, here's the good news for those who are followers of Jesus. The incarnation of Christ comes to bear in our lives every day. And there's not a single day in our lives or in our journey with Christ that we would say, ah, today's a day not for worship. And so I want us to listen well to this very familiar story as it teaches us about the importance of the worship of Christ. So follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. 
What's this story teach us about worship? The word worship is repeated multiple times from start to finish. It's the main action that drives the story. These wise men, the Magi, have come to Jerusalem to worship. The story culminates in worship, and so it has a lot to teach us this morning about the worship of Jesus, and I want to highlight for you three characteristics. Here's how we know we've Christmas well when we understand what it means to worship Christ. What does this story teach us about the worship of Jesus? First of all, it teaches us that Jesus is worshiped by a global choir. Jesus is worshiped by a global choir. At the outset of this story, there's a cast of characters that we need to be familiar with. We need to know Herod, we need to know the Magi, and we need to know this star also. So who is Herod? Let me introduce you to Herod. Herod went by the name, this Herod anyways, went by the name Herod the Great. And he earned that in a number of different ways. Herod was born in 74 BC. He dies around 4 BC. And he lived a history-making life. His rise in power was due in part to his father. His father was influential in different spheres of the Roman government. And uh, there was an uprising and a lot of trouble in the region of Galilee while his father was in a position of power. And so Herod's father convinced the Roman authorities to put his young son Herod in charge of Galilee. Herod gets appointed to this post as a governor over Galilee, and he puts down rebellion, he brings quiet, he brings peace. And early on in his career, he began to make a name for himself. He allied himself carefully with people in power. Um, He manipulated his superiors with expertise. And Quite frankly, he was a murderous thug who killed his peers in order to attain and hold on to position and power inside the Roman Empire. And so Herod eventually is appointed as the governor over uh, Judea and the regions around it. It's a pretty significant piece of land. It's not the largest piece of territory in the Roman Empire, but it's one of the most important. It's a major trade route. It's a connecting point of southern empire, northern empire, eastern empire, and it's a little property of land that Uh, no surprise to you, has always been filled with strife and fighting and all sorts of wars and battles and all kinds of of uprisings. Well, Herod proved himself to be a capable leader in that he brings relative peace to the region. Now, he brings peace at the edge of a sword, but it's peace nonetheless. Herod applied his uh, himself to accumulating wealth, extracting taxes out of that little piece of land. Uh, and he, he stockpiles that wealth for himself. And then he also launched into all kinds of building campaigns. He was an incredible builder. To this day, you go to, uh, you go to Jerusalem, you go to Israel, and you're going to tour buildings and things that were built by Herod. They're still there to this day. Uh, he's a remarkable builder, remarkable leader. Uh, here's what's also surprising about Herod. Uh, he's not Jewish. His father is from a region called Idumea. His mother was Arabian. Uh, the king of the Jews is himself not a Jew. Now, to call him king is not to elevate him above Caesar. Uh, the Caesar in Rome, he's the big boss man of all. Uh, but Herod takes the moniker king of the Jews, uh, and uh, the Jewish people have a tumultuous relationship with him. Uh, on the one hand, he's a thug. He's a 
pagan. He's not a Yahweh worshiper. He's not a part of the covenant community. But then he's also, in other ways, a friend to Jerusalem. He helps uh, to complete a, a rebuilding project of the temple. He adorned it with gold and all kinds of things that made it as more beautiful than it had ever been before. Herod's temple is what it's called, not because Herod was worshipped there, but because he helped with the, uh, the, the refinishing and the restructuring of this incredible building. Uh, so there's a love-hate relationship between Herod the Great and the Jews that he rules over. Uh, Herod was extremely guarded of his power, very paranoid of the people around him. Uh, he had one of his wives killed because she was a threat, or she voiced threats to his throne. Uh, he had, before he killed her, he had her mother testify against her on these trumped-up charges. And then later, he had her mother killed as well. Herod also had three of his own sons killed because of their threats to his rule, which led one ancient observer to say, better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Uh, he was a monster of a human being. This was Herod the Great. We need to meet the Magi. Who are the Magi in this story? Our Christmas carol calls them we three kings. A couple things wrong there. Uh, not kings. They were wise men, astrologers. Uh, they, were, um, they were advisors to kings. They themselves were not kings. Um, traditionally, we say there were three of them, and the reason we say there were three is because that's the number of gifts that were given to Mary and the Christ child. Um, but nothing in the story tells us there were only three. I think it's safe to say there were at least three. And, and you don't need to feel the need anytime you walk past a nativity with three wise men in it to yell, heresy! <laughs> it's fine how it is. Just leave it alone. Choose your battles wisely. But, um, but there's at least three. They, came, they would have come in a huge caravan. This was a diplomatic visit. So these astrologers, they are Gentiles. They're definitely not Jewish, definitely not part of the covenant community. Uh, they watch the skies, and they see a star in the sky, and that star tells them a king has been born in Judea. And that's why they come to this region. They come because their reading of the stars tells them that uh, a new king is present. And so their visit is a political visit. It's a social visit. Uh, they're coming to offer good graces to, they assume, to King Herod. They would expect to find the newborn king in Herod's palace. That's why they go to Herod to begin with. Now, one more character we need to meet in this story. What is this star? What's this star that that upon its rising signals that a new king has been born and tells these magi where the king is located. Later in the story, the star shows up again, and it shows them the precise house where the child is to be found. What's this star? A lot of attempted explanations through the years. could be some sort of unique uh, astronomical event, a comet of some sort, something like that. But... Uh, I heard a theory recently that I'm on board with, and I think you're welcome to get on board with it also. I was talking to our friend and church member and resident New Testament scholar Mark Jennings uh, about this, and he said he thinks that the star was an angel. There are angels all over the birth account of Jesus, both in Luke and here in Matthew. And there are multiple places in Scripture where angels are also referred to as stars. And so it makes sense that this could be an angel uh, who, uh, 
whom the, the, the uh, Magi interpreted as a star and followed. That's Paul. I, I like that theory. I think it's a great theory. And if it's wrong, we can blame Mark for teaching us heresy and we can go on about our business. He's not here to defend himself and that's great. Um, so when Christ is born, he isn't visited by priests. And he isn't visited by high-ranking Roman officials. When Jesus is born, he is visited by Gentile astrologers. What does that tell us about the reign of Jesus, about the mission of Jesus? Doesn't it tell us that he's come to bring salvation to people of all nations? That with the coming of Christ, the doors to the kingdom are thrown wide open to any who would hear the gospel and say yes to Jesus Christ, making him king of their lives. From the very beginning of this story, we're confronted with the reality that he is a global God with a global mission of grace. Why these magi? Well, certainly it's not because they were the most moral of all magi or the, the, the most God-leaning of all magi. Uh, all we know is that they're just pagan astrologers. They're idolaters. And yet God summons them. He speaks to them in a unique way through this star in a language they're going to understand. And He summons them to come and meet the Christ child. And it's only an act of His grace that brings them this far. So it's easy for us at the outset of this story to see that our God is a global God. His mission is a global mission. Christ is born to bring to himself people of all nations and wants to see his story, his gospel spread among all nations. Now that is not something I have to convince you of. As a part of this church, this worshiping community, you know that this is deep in our DNA. Our church exists to glorify God by worshiping Him and making disciples for Christ from people of the South Shore and beyond. You clapped and we celebrated this morning the generosity that the Lord has brought up from within us to fund missionaries to the tune of over $300,000 in this next year. I praise God for you and your generosity and your obedience to Him. So I don't have to convince you of the global nature of God's mission we are long at this point, and we celebrate it, and we amen it together. We're okay with it. But here's where I think the challenge lies for you and I. It is far easier for us to love faceless ideas of people across the globe than it is for us sometimes to love our neighbors face-to-face. Easier for us to love the nations than it is to love the neighborhood or love the people who live right in our vicinity or even love our fellow citizens but those who have a different political persuasion or life choices than our own. Our mission to take the gospel to the nations starts at home. And here's where this gets really challenging. Gentile astrologers are recipients of the grace of God in an audience with the Christ child. And if they can be summoned by God through His grace to see Jesus and behold Him in all of His infant glory, then surely you and I can love people who live and act and believe and vote in different ways than we do. I, I get, I'm a little tired of, of the, um, the observation that, that we're a divided country. It's just, it's true. I'm tired of it, not because it's not true. I'm just, we talk about it a lot. 
So here's what's so important about this gathering and this hour right here. Christians are not divided as the world is divided. Christians do not separate as as the world separates. Jesus Christ brings us together. The very reason you and I get to hear the gospel this morning and celebrate it together is because he's the global God that brings Gentiles to salvation. And and so if, if he does that for us, he does that for all the people around us. And when anyone walks into this church, what they have to experience is an oasis of Christian unity. Not a place where we check at the door, how are you voting, what are your opinions, what do you do here, what do you do there? We see a heartbeat, and we see breath, and we see the image of God, and we love them with the ferocious grace of Jesus Christ. We welcome them in, and we give them Jesus Christ, and we love them all the way to the cross. People have to see something different in and among us because of Christ in us. He's made one family out of them all. Spend some time in the book of Ephesians, and you learn how Christ brings together people who live on opposite ends of the universe But by Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, one loaf. We eat together, worship together as one loaf, one body under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So he's to be worshipped because he's a global savior. And he's worshipped by a global choir of men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That mission continues through his church today. Why do we worship Jesus at Christmas? It's because he's worshipped by a global choir. He's a God of global grace. There's a second thing we learned about the worship of Christ in this story. It's that Jesus is worshipped for his perfect power. We know who he's worshipped by. Believers of all types, all nations. And here we see what he's worshipped for. He's worshipped for his perfect power. I love the way this scene unfolds. Herod does not receive the news of a newborn king with delight. Remember, this, he murders anyone that crosses his path in a negative way. And so uh, he hears the news, and uh, he immediately wants to understand more so that he can eliminate this threat. So he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. I, I imagine it going down in this way. This is not biblically accurate, I'm sure, but a, a big to-do, Herod's upset. All the power brokers are upset with him. All oh, the king's upset. We should be upset too. Okay. So he summons this huge council. All these religious leaders, all these important, wise, and learned scholars, he brings them together in a giant room and he says, we have a mystery I need you to solve this morning. We've got a terrible dilemma on our hands and a question that I'm not sure anyone knows the answer to. So that's why I've brought you all together so you can put your brains together and search and try to answer this question, where will the Christ be born? And in the shortest meeting ever, someone raises their hand and says, oh, Bethlehem, <laughs> uh, it's written in Micah chapter 5 that out of Bethlehem, will come a ruler to shepherd my people. So everyone got together for this one question and this one brief, very quick answer. And it's interesting to me, Herod gets the answer to his question. He gets the fact, but he doesn't get the meaning. He doesn't get any explanation of what it means that a Savior would come out of Bethlehem. 
But you and I get the added advantage of understanding a bit more of what it means. Herod gets his answer, this, uh, this Christ child would be born in Bethlehem. Interesting that the king of the Jews does not know basic Jewish doctrine. So then Herod brings the wise men back to him, summons them secretly, and he says, here's what I want you to do. Uh, our wise men tell us that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. So I want you to go and I want you to search for the child. And when you find him, come back and let me know so that I can go and worship him also. Now, the story doesn't tell us that the Magi pick up on any sliminess from Herod in this conversation. I think they're in it with him. Oh, yeah, he wants to know. The king wants to know where the new king is born. Yeah, we'll be back. We'll come with the news and let you know as soon as we find him. We're glad to do this for you, King Herod. I think they take Herod at his word. You and I know different. We know he's a scheming murderer. And, and he has death uh, on his thoughts when he thinks about this child. And so he dispatches the wise man to go find the child for him. The promise that Herod used to scheme should have instead be used as a catalyst for worship. That's the way it is for you and I. This prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 is such a beautiful prophecy about the origins, the humble origins of the Messiah. It tells us that the great and mighty shepherd of God's people is going to come from really small beginnings. That's Bethlehem. Bethlehem is little bitty. It is a nothing town. It's not on anyone's radar. No one thinks about Bethlehem. No one goes to Bethlehem. It's just there. And isn't this always God's way? You and I, we're looking for muscle men from Jerusalem, but he gives us a baby in Bethlehem. Now, if Herod had, had a bit more wisdom about him, he might have asked the, the gathered scholars to explain more about this prophecy. What does Micah go on to tell us about this one who would be born in Bethlehem? Here's what Herod would have heard. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And his flock will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. In other words, the one born in Bethlehem is the anti-Herod. Herod's position came from murderous scheming, but Jesus' position comes by nature of his divinity. Herod's greatness extends to the borders of his appointed territory, but Jesus' greatness reaches to the ends of the earth. Herod is called great because of his accumulated wealth and power. Jesus is great and distributes his peace and security for his people. Herod's kingdom was split at his death, but at Christ's death and resurrection, his kingdom is secured forever and ever. And so Christian, do not be overly impressed or afraid of earthly kingdoms and their leaders. Every Herod has a shelf life. Every Herod will have a funeral and will meet with the judgment of God. And the people of God have always been Bethlehem people. Not Jerusalem people, not Rome people, not D.C. people, Bethlehem people. Now what I mean by that is our trust is not in our earthly resources or our worldly influence. Our strength is from the Lord. And that comes from a Savior who lowered himself, descended from greatness on high all the way to death on a cross. That's what it is to be Bethlehem people. 
He's born in abject poverty to impoverished peasant parents. He's not born in a palace. He's born in a cave. He's not attended to by royalty and by wealth and by dignitaries. He's attended to by shepherds and then later on by Gentile astrologers. We're Bethlehem people. And so our hope is not in the powers of this world. Our hope is in the one with perfect power. That's who Jesus Christ is. Throughout the Bible, we we see examples of this perfect power of God on display through his people. Moses defeated the Egyptian army by raising his staff over the Red Sea. Joshua brought down the walls of Jericho by marching and blowing trumpets. David brought down Goliath with a stone. Esther turned the tides of her people with a mill. And a baby was born in Bethlehem. It's the strength of the Lord that does all of this. And it's the same today. The Christian strength is not in worldly resources, but in the might of our shepherd who cares for us, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord God. His power and his presence are available to every person. I think I told this story before, and if I have, just pretend like it's the first time, because it's a great story. Several years ago, uh, my wife, Melissa, and I uh, were able to make a trip to Israel. Incredible trip. And we're with this tour group, uh, a lot of other believers from America, pastors and some people from their churches as well. And part of the trip is you you tour all of these Byzantine-era churches that are built on holy sites. These these churches are just astonishing. The architecture and the acoustics, it's all just so incredible. And, And it just struck me this one particular day, here we are, modern people, Right? We have cell phones and we have fire. And yet I walk into this Byzantine-era church and I'm, I'm transported to a different place. I'm just blown away by the structure, the architecture, all of it. And so as we're leaving one of these churches, I'm talking to a, a much more experienced pastor than myself. And I just made this observation. I, I said, you know, don't you think that something about these buildings should inform our modern church architecture. Like you step into there and you feel like you're transported to a different place. Like It's like the structure dictates the holiness, so to speak. And so when you walk in, it tells you something about the God who is and, and about what it is to worship Him. It just feels like the structure leads to a greater experience of God. And this wise pastor said, you know, my church... For many years, we had to meet in a double-wide trailer. And we never once lacked for the presence of God as long as the gospel was preached. That was the last time I talked to that guy. That's what the power of Christ is like. It's not in buildings, structures, the power Uh, plants of mankind, the presence and power of Christ is perfect in its Bethlehem humility and the strength of the Lord given to his people who follow him. He's a baby laid in a manger. He's a man nailed to a cross. The power of Jesus is not like the world's power, and that's why we exalt him. It's a global choir exalting the perfect power of Christ. Third and finally, we worship Jesus as king. 
Jesus is worshipped as king. So the Magi and their caravan, they take off from Herod's palace. And then once again, they're guided by the star. And, and I love the way verse 10 describes their response. It says, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Again, I, that sort of response to this heavenly light tells me God's at work here. And he's doing something in the hearts and souls of these magi. The star doesn't lead them just to a general region where they go knocking on doors. It leads them to the specific house where they find the holy family. And when they enter the house, they're finally able to do what they've wanted to do the whole time. They wanted to worship. And so that's what they do. They enter, they see the Christ child, the king, and they bow before him and they worship. And then having worshiped, they give him gifts. Three gifts are named gold, frankincense, which is this sort of resinous material that's used for medicinal purposes as well as for some cultic worship purposes. Myrrh, another resinous material used for uh, different types of things. Uh, And they give these three gifts to the Christ child. These gifts on their own, each individually, are huge, monumental gifts. And put them together, these are the types of gifts you give royalty. They didn't just go digging through the saddlebags on the side of their camels and say, oh, hey, we got some extra of this. What they brought was gifts suited for a king. They thought they would be leaving this in Herod's palace. But this gift that was meant for Herod's palace is now left with these peasant parents and their child. It's incredible, the gift that they lavish on Jesus. And it's amazing to me that the Magi in this story, they don't worship Herod, and they don't worship Caesar. They worship the King, Jesus. And so this whole story has been building to this one question. Is Jesus the King of your life? If I were to ask you, who is found in this story? You might say, well, the Christ child was found. The Magi were searching for him. Herod's searching for him. The Magi find him. Jesus is the one that's found. I would argue different. I'd say it's the Magi who are found in this story. They were brought all that way by the grace of God to behold the Christ child. And in this they are found. Is Jesus the king of your life? Have you been found by him? Lots of different kings exist throughout history. Jesus is not a tyrant king. He's not a king like Herod. Jesus is a king like no other. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is mighty. He is a shepherd. He is humble. And he loves you. And he's the kind of king that would humble himself all the way to the cross to die in your place for your sin. He's the king that's worthy of your life and the king that has life to give. Is he your king? So oftentimes, I don't know about you, I've treated him like a cosmic butler who's there to do my bidding. Or or like some, essentially like a, a lucky rabbit's foot. If I do some things in the right way, then he'll pay me back. Sort of this cosmic Christian karma approach to life. But That's not how you treat a king. Is he your king? He loves you, and he's come for you, and this story is an invitation for you to trust your life to him. Your whole life could be changed today 
if you would say yes to Jesus Christ and make him the king of your life. What about those of you who are already followers of Jesus? You have made him king of your life. How can we better relate to Jesus as king? Here's something that strikes me about this story, that if you and I are going to better relate to Jesus as king, if we're going to be better worshipers of our King Jesus, the one central requirement of all of us is going to be time. Time is essential for Jesus to be the king of our lives in the way he desires to be. And so we learn to relate to him as king when we give him our time. Men and women who are spiritual heroes to me and and probably to you as well, if you were to think about their lives, they are the kinds of people who give Jesus their time. And it's not just because they're retired and have nothing better to do, but I think it's because they have learned lessons about what they want to do with the time God has given them. They want to spend that time with God. Their spirituality is characterized by being with Jesus before it is characterized by doing for Jesus. So when you relate to Jesus as your king, you're going to shape your schedule around him. We don't throw cheap time to royalty. If Queen Elizabeth called, and we're not her subjects, but if she called you, she would not ask, uh, hey, when are you free? <laughs> she would say, I'll see you on Tuesday. And you'd say, pip, pip, cheerio, and off you'd go to visit the queen. I think that's what they say. I don't know. This is America. But look, kings receive people. And when we go to royalty, we leave our watches behind We don't set a schedule. We don't squeeze in the king in a time that just fits for us. Our lives are shaped around this invitation to sit with the king. If you want to pursue the depths of God, then you have to surrender your frantic enslavement to time. One of my favorite preachers said, God does not wear a watch. His unthinkable glory is learned only in our time-consuming communion with him. So these are the days right now to start thinking about goals for the next year. And every goal you set is going to require time. Did you know that? If you're going to lose weight, it's going to take some time. If you're going to learn to speak French, that's going to take time. Play the banjo, going to take time. Give up the accordion, going to take time. Whatever it is, it's going to take time to achieve those goals. But what if you committed to an audience with the king every day? And in that time, you pray, you read, you sit with him. It'll mean you have to reorganize certain aspects of your life. Because if you don't do this already, your life is not designed with the margin necessary for you to enjoy time with the king. Not just squeezing in a moment here and there, but I mean nice, quiet, uninterrupted time with our king. It may mean reorganizing some things, changing some routines and some patterns in your life. But is the king worth it? He is. Are you worth it? You are. His invitation to you is wide open and every day is an opportunity to have time with the king. So how does this story make us better worshipers? Well, it shows us that Jesus is worshipped by a global choir for his perfect power because he's the king who reigns eternal today and every day. T.S. Eliot wrote one of my favorite Christmas poems. Uh, It's called Journey of the Magi. And I'm not going to read all of it, but just to give you a few lines. He imagines what the Magi 
might have thought upon meeting the Christ child. This meeting was not some nominal encounter. It it was deeply moving. And so he imagines sort of this internal dialogue as the Magi try to make sense of what they've seen. And they ask this question, were we led all that way for birth or death? I'd seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. So whether or not the Magi could have truly articulated the connection between the birth and death of this child, you and I can. We know Christmas and we know Easter. And when Jesus is our King, then you and I become a part of that eternal choir who in Revelation chapter 5 sings this, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us, the same grace you extend to people like Magi is the grace you extend to us. And when I find myself in this story, I find myself in them. When I think about my sin, I'm the one who was far, far away. Worse than Herod. Herod sold his soul for a kingdom and riches. I sold mine for so much less. And then to think that you came to me, you beckoned me, you called me, and you put me in a place where I heard the gospel and my life was changed. What you've done for the Magi, you've done for me. I praise you for that. And I recognize it's not because of anything uniquely special about me. It's just because of your beautiful grace. So Lord, help us each to rest in this truth this morning that we would each know who is king of our lives. This story shows us two ways to live. One is Herod's way, who knows there's another king and it drives him mad. The other is the Magi's way, who know there's a king and they worship. Lord, let us be like the Magi. I pray this morning that you would soften the hearts and awaken faith in any of my friends here today that don't know you as their savior. They've gone through another Christmas without really worshiping or knowing what this is about. Would you bring them new life today as they make you king of their lives? And I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that we would live our lives daily with our time given to the king, that our lives would be transformed, that the gospel would be potent in our telling and living, that you would be glorified this day and for every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.